Like old times. <laughs> this is the last Dharma talk of the retreat. sort of remarkable to think that three months ago or six weeks ago you came here to these very special conditions. Who would have guessed that something so interminable could go by so quickly? (laughs) But here you are, getting ready to go home. And this has been a very different environment from the one most of you are used to. Perhaps not so much for Sister Jewel, but certainly the lay people here. When you think about what it's been like to be here, you can see how unusual the environment is, how rarefied in a kind of way. When we come on retreat, there are some very interesting features of the environment. So first of all, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And you're in silence. Except for the hammers and the bulldozers, (laughs) all you hear are natural sounds. Not a lot of speaking except at the talks, in the chanting, and in your interviews. You've been pretty much in silence, at least externally. So, no eye contact, keeping your sense doors guarded and your energy in. Vegetarian meals... That's been a great part. (laughs) Something childlike about having somebody make food for you every day. No sex. (laughs) You may have noticed that. I won't go there. Simple rooms. Perhaps you've been doing the eight precepts. No, No eating after the midday meal. No scented products. No TV. No radio. No internet. At least supposedly. Little or no contact with friend and friends and family. In fact, when you describe it, when you say it all out loud like that, it sounds a little bit like you've been monastics. Or quasi-monastic in any case. And some of you even have gone so far as to adopt the haircuts of monastics. 
So you've been here doing this intensive meditation practice in this environment that's been designed specifically to support this purpose. And there have been a lot of teachings and a lot of teachers, and very soon it's going to end. And usually at this point, the thought may come up in your mind, how do I take this home? At least this is the case for many of you. For some of you, the thought might come up in your mind, how can I get out of here as soon as possible and never come back? (laughs) But for many of you, there's a desire to take it or have it, take it with you. And sometimes this taking it or this with you can get mixed up with somehow taking this whole retreat thing along. The whole ethos of it, the whole conditions of it, the whole orientation to silence and to seclusion and meditative silence that we've had here. And you might think that what you've been doing here is the real deal. This is the real thing. This is the real practice just like we've been doing it here. And you might think that that's true to the exclusion of what is often called real life, the life outside these walls. You might think this real deal is the only way to practice, the only way to get benefit. But you'd be wrong about that. The Buddha is very clear about this point. He had a much broader, more inclusive understanding and view of what he was doing and how his teachings were to be understood. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, when he's talking in his book, In the Buddha's Words, the function of a Buddha is to discover realize and proclaim the Dharma in its full range and depth. And this involves a comprehensive understanding of the varied applications of the Dhamma in all its multiple dimensions. The Buddha not only penetrates to the unconditioned state of perfect bliss that lies beyond samsara, outside the pale of birth, aging, and death, He not only proclaims that path to full enlightenment and final liberation, but he also illumines the many ways the Dhamma applies to the complex conditions of human life for people still immersed in the world. And if you take a look at the Buddha, his mind had great power. And one of the hallmarks of being a Buddha is a mastery of the full range of skillful means. His own awakening occurred as the result of very close observation of learning by direct experience and direct clear seeing what led to what. Deep insight into causation that led in the direct 
direction of liberation. He saw very deeply into the causes of greed, hatred, and delusion. He saw so deeply into their causation. He saw how it was possible to reverse engineer the whole process. And because his seeing was so complete and so deep, he could communicate this path to liberation to all kinds of people. And he taught the full, full range of people in his time and gave the teachings in many different iterations, each appropriate and complete for the group or individual he was talking to. He taught all kinds of people, monks and nuns, of course, kings, courtesans, widows, children, businessmen, husbands and wives, warriors, mothers, brahmins, and members of the lowest social classes. So every kind of being there was, he taught. And he taught the full range of people in the manner that was appropriate to the totality of their conditions and in a way that was responsive to their specific inquiries. In other words, he accepted them at the starting point of their inquiry. However they framed the question, he would respond to what they were asking. Sometimes he responded in a way that told them that was the wrong question and that they needed to start here, but he would always respond to them where they started from. And part of why he was so customized in terms of how he worked with people was that he wasn't an indoctrinator. He wasn't interested in giving a big rap and having people accept it as a matter of belief because he was the Buddha or claimed to be the Buddha and they should take it at his word. He was more interested in finding the inquiry within them, the spark of investigation, and fanning the flames, getting that going for them. So awakening wisdom was what was required from his perspective, not blind faith in him or anything that he said. He didn't think everybody should be a monk or a nun. It's not possible. Most of us are not set up for that to be a viable lifelong path. He didn't think it was possible for everyone to be a monk or a nun, nor did he think it was necessary. In fact, if you really think about this, if everyone had become a renunciate, (laughs) the path probably would have died out. Because it's very dependent on the support of lay people. The entire teaching structure, the ability for there to be teachers to offer the teachings, is completely dependent on lay support. And if there hadn't been the support of wealthy and not so wealthy lay people, it's very likely that it never would have carried through time. 
especially when you consider that monastic communities by their nature are not self-replicating. Right? I mean, the, the source of uh, monastic practitioners is lay family life. That's where they come from. They come from families. They arise out of that and then make that choice in their life. So there, it's replenished anew from the, the ranks of the lay community. The whole monastic structure that has largely been responsible for carrying the teachings. I want to talk about some common misunderstandings of Buddhist practice among Westerners. When we come across the teachings, we always add things to them. And of course, what we have to draw on is our own personal history and understanding, and also the cultural matrix in which we've grown up and exist. And for most Western people, at least for those who come from uh, families which are not Asian, which are not part of the traditional practitioner groups, we can easily get the wrong idea. We can easily think that it's all about meditation and being quiet. And we could even get the idea that sense pleasure is off limits and that Joy is somehow suspect. The Buddha does talk a lot about suffering. Talks about suffering, talks about suffering, talks about suffering. But he's describing the problem when he's talking about suffering. He's not prescribing suffering as what you're supposed to do. If we're introduced to Buddhism through meditation, which we often are, we can get the idea, especially through silent retreat, that the retreat model is the way we should attempt to live our lives as lay people. That in some sort of way we should try to transport this setup or some variety of this setup into what we're going to be doing next. But that, there's a problem with that, which is that generally speaking in our lives as lay people, the whole scene is very much different. It's greatly at variance with how it's been here. And we would essentially be trying to live as quasi-monastics in a culture that doesn't understand or support that. Now, this is not to knock people who have a real bent for renunciation, lay people who have a real renunciate kind of mind and orientation. And there are people like that. I know a number of them who who basically are not monastics, but what works for, for them and what feels right to them and where they really thrive is in living in a way that's as close to this kind of environment as they can set up for themselves. So there are people like that. And I'm not denigrating that in any kind of way. But for most of us, it doesn't really work. And if we think that 
the only way is the kind of way that we've been here, then there's a false binary that's set up. And we can wind up making a problem out of something that really doesn't need to be that way. Creating a, a kind of dualism. And it's based on an idea that we got somewhere about the right way we need to do it or the only way that we can practice. And it's very understandable why we could get confused in this kind of way. If you look at how the Buddhist teachings have been carried, it has largely been through the monastic community. And it's very likely that over time what happened was the te- many of the teachings that were directed to lay people were not necessarily carried because they didn't pertain to the monastic community. And if you look at where the teachings are that pertain specifically to lay people, you kind of find them spread around in various places. They're not uh, in a unified body of teachings. And the other part of it is you're not necessarily going to get a lot of the teachings specifically oriented towards lay people when you're on retreat because when you're on retreat in this kind of setting you're kind of like monks and nuns and you're being given a lot of the teachings that have a more renunciate flavor to them. So you're not necessarily going to get it in this kind of setting either. You're being offered some of the, the the teachings that come with deep meditation practice, the ones that seem to be most pertinent and related to that. But if we're not monastics, then the, and we're not going to be monastics when we leave here, then the question comes, how can we use the life that we actually have to wake up? Can we use the life that we actually have and practice with the life that we have, not rejecting it? So here's the question. How can we practice after we let go of the special circumstances here? We're letting go of the special circumstances, but consider what remains. All the fields of practice in the Eightfold Path remain. The Dharma itself remains operating and visible in everything if we can see it. Skillful and unskillful attitudes and actions remain. Karma remains. The three characteristics of all conditioned things remain to be seen. The four foundations of mindfulness remain to be practiced. Dana remains to be cultivated and offered. The precepts remain to be trained. The paramis remain to be developed. The Brahma-viharas remain to be practiced. 
And mindfulness remains, possibly. And concentration remains, possibly, depending on how we choose. So the raw materials for practice are still there. The whole field of practice is still open. But it's different when you leave. Because now things are in motion, more obviously in motion. Things are more open, broader. If you consider retreat practice as being deep, but kind of narrow, specialized in a certain kind of way, lay practice is broader, more interactive, and it has a much more visible social dimension. That means other people. You in relationship to other people, you as a member of a community, or a family, or a culture, a sangha. So lay practice is different, but it's not inferior. It's the out-breath. There's all the learning and the understanding that's been gained here. And going back, going out, is the exhale back into the world, where there's the opportunity to actually apply what's been learned on the cushion, to integrate the understanding that's been gained with activity. And this marketplace kind of practice will really test your understanding and commitment to the whole path. So even though the field of practice is different, the practices and teachings can be integrated into lay life. There are other teachings of the Buddha which are not usually offered, which are directly pertinent. So for instance, did you know that the Buddha taught that Relative happiness is a good and worthy thing. And that part of his teachings to lay people included how to attain relative happiness, as well as prosperity and a good marriage. The Buddha didn't say that kind of happiness is the highest happiness of human beings. He saw its limitations, which are the same limitations that all conditioned things have. But he saw it as a positive and nothing to be denigrated. If you look at the main teachings of dana or generosity, sila, uh, moral trainings, trainings in moral restraint, and the Brahma-viharas, you can see that those are all directly applicable. And in many Asian American Buddhist communities, those are among the primary practices that people do. The Brahma-vihara attitudes, the offering of generosity, the practice of the precepts. 
meditation is not necessarily a big part of the way those communities practice. Those are three very important teachings directly applicable to to you in lay life. But there are other specific teachings that could also be of interest and of use to you. And it would be good for you to check them out. There's a book that is relatively new that pulls them all together in one place and it organizes them by topic and um, has an accessible commentary on them. And the book's called The Buddha's Teachings on Prosperity. That's kind of an interesting topic. The Buddha's Teachings on Prosperity. He thought it was okay. So that was by a Sri Lankan monk, Bhikkhu Basnagoda Rahula, Wisdom Press. And it's even got some love advice in it. So those of you who are, who are looking in that direction. So let's talk a little bit more about this daily life practice and how to do it how to consider it, how to design your customized daily life practice. So in thinking about this, you might want to start with an examination or reflection on your life priorities. What are your life priorities and why? How does this whole Dharma thing fit into that? And how important is this kind of learning and development to you? How does it fit with your other life priorities and responsibilities? So there's an initial clarification there. Why are there balloons on the floor in here? Okay, going back to the topic. So that's the first thing, values clarification right there at the beginning. Then the second question is, once you've figured out or have a felt sense for where this is in your scheme of values, in your hierarchy of what's important to you, the second question is, which practices of the Eightfold Path will you emphasize? Because there's a range of them. And how will you practice them? What do you imagine, at least initially, to be the, the course of your bhavana, your, your emotional, mental, spiritual development? Knowing yourself, Where do you want to focus? You can focus broadly, you can focus specifically, but is it is it conscious? And I know a number of you, as part of the the process of having final interviews, have noticed that there may have been suggestions from teachers about particular things. For instance, I think this style practice might 
might be something you'd want to check out or you might want to look into this or check out this book. This teacher might be a good person for you. So you have probably have had some teacher input. But the other part of it, of course, is what's the inner voice? What's the interest? What resonates for you? What do you intuit might be a path to some things that seem to be core to your personal inquiry? Where is it alive for you? What part of the practices and what part of the teachings? To what level are you interested in practicing? There's probably three different levels for anything you're looking at. The first one is hearing it, whether that means reading it it in a book or listening to a Dharma talk, hearing the teaching. The second level is knowing it. In other words, being able to mentally organize it enough to be able to state it back in a somewhat coherent way if only to yourself, forming an internal understanding of it initially. And then the the third level of that is penetrating it in some sort of way, penetrating this teaching or this practice, assimilating it, making it a deeply absorbed understanding or training that actually changes who you are and how you are from the inside out. Transformational practice and insight. Now there's an important point here related to practice and practices. And it's this. You may have noticed in the course of being on retreat particular areas of psychological or emotional pain. Maybe it's trauma-related stuff. Maybe it's things related to your personal history. Something that has repeatedly come up for you in a very painful, difficult often unworkable way on retreat. It's important to know that even though Dharma practice and Dharma teachings is a universal medicine, meaning it will help whatever ails you, it's not necessarily the best medicine or the most direct way of addressing particularly lodged forms of emotional pain. So if something has come up for you on this retreat of that type and you haven't done some sort of process that might involve psychological investigation or psychotherapy that kind of investigation with those, within those kinds of modalities, 
you should really consider it. Because while Dharma practice is good for every being and is a tonic for us on many different levels, it's not necessarily the best thing for every single kind of pain that a human being can have. And sometimes we come to Dharma practice and we have certain kinds of emotional wounds that can benefit from the practice, but it could also benefit more directly from other things. And these these paths are not in conflict. I would say almost everybody I know that teaches has done at least some investigation of their stuff, if you want to put it that way, using these other methods as well. Okay, so net, once you've, to tie out this section, once you've found out what practices of the Brahma Viharas you wish to emphasize, then it's just to, and figured out where it fits into your, your life, at what level you want to practice it, then it's just a question of figuring out what the resources are that are available to help you, support you in that particular inquiry. And in, probably in the daily life session that you got today, and in your visits to the welcome room and the cornucopia of books and publications and things that are in there, you found out a lot already. So there's the Sangha, or community piece. Who are you going to practice with? You could find a, such a group such a place, or if you're a self-starter, you could organize something for yourself and invite like-minded people in. And the role of community is very important because if you think about it, you might not have anything else in common with somebody, but if you have this in common with them, you have a lot in common with them compared to the more typical individual that you might run across. This is a bit of an off-the-beaten-path interest you have here, (laughs) at the depth you have it. So Sangha is very important to find a community of kindred souls. We don't have souls, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Okay. So there's all all the books, articles, publications. the talks, the teachings online, Dharma Seed, access to insight and all that, and then the retreats and and teachers. So you can put together your own strategy. Figure out what you're interested in, how it fits into your life priorities, what depth you want to pursue it. Figure out the resources. Put it together. Make your plan. Now on to our final topic of the talk. The marketplace talk. 
This is about making the transition either back to where you came from, if you're going home, or making the transition on to something else, which you perhaps don't even know yet. But in any case, you'll be leaving here. The first point is, you're closing out what's happened here, in a sense. You're physically going to be leaving the premises, hopefully with all of your meditation equipment and socks and coats and things. Watch and see if the mind wants to hold on here. The keep it mind arising. For some of you, some of some of you I'm sure are the get the heck out, get on with it mind, but the hold on to it mind. Whether that's trying to hold on to states here or trying to hold on to the environment or trying to hold on to the people. Watch see if the holding on mind is there. Because if the holding on mind is there and it's not seen and it's strong, you're not going to be able as easily to open to the actual truth of what's happening as you move into the world. You're going to be going through a process of reviewing the retreat and what happened here. And it takes quite a while for it to really work through your system. It's a very deep thing to do. And you'll probably find that you form some very vivid memories during the time that you've been here. I know for myself, I came here in 1987 for the first three-month retreat. And I stayed in the annex. And even today, whenever I walk over that bridge, you know, where they keep the linens, I smell the linen closet, and it's very vivid, very vivid, the memories of being here on that retreat. And it's likely that you'll have that kind of experience too. The experience that you had here is going to keep on working after you've left. There's a long digestive and assimilation process that goes with doing this kind of practice at the level and for the length of time you've been here. It's going to keep working on you. Some advice for while traveling. Driving is fortunately a habit. And this is one case where you can let your habit do the driving. Just let it do the driving. If it gets confusing, just stop. Pull over. Stop. But it probably won't. It's interesting to see how automated that function is. 
it can be useful to stay in the body, feel the feet, feel the feet, feel the weight of the body, the solidity of the body, heaviness of the body. Watch the sense doors because it's going to be loud out there. If you're going to be doing the airport exit, there are quiet places in the airport and you can find them. Sometimes you can find a gate that's empty, no planes are using it. Or many of the airports have those meditation, contemplation rooms somewhere, usually on some out-of-the-way place. But it's a good place if you've got a few hours to go and sit and hang out, be quiet. Brahma-vihara practice while you're traveling can be really helpful. I can remember (laughs) once getting off uh, a retreat here and getting on an air, airplane to fly back to the west coast. And as I was walking down the aisle, I realized that, of course, I was the dreaded middle passenger, but the two guys on either side of me were really big guys, and I'm not small. And I thought, oh, let's see, I'm going to be in the air for. X number of hours and I'm going to be sitting between these two guys I don't know and they're kind of overflowing the seats and like I'm going to be touching them the whole time and I won't be able to, you know. Then I remembered, ah, meta practice. Meta practice. It really helps. It it removes that uh, need to try to escape from human contact. Very often. So, highly recommended with plane travel. So, returning to the marketplace itself. This is really where mindfulness and equanimity practice is so important. There can be a kind of shock sometimes when you return because of the sensory nature of the outside world. It's really been quiet here. When you go back out, it everything's on again. People are talking everywhere. There's all kinds of sounds. There's electronica of all types. And initially it can be a little bit of, whoa, and not necessarily in a pleasant way. So that sensitivity wears off, you'll be glad to know. So in the meantime, just try to keep yourself grounded, stay in the body, find opportunity for some quiet and some seclusion, practice the Brahma-viharas, You can sometimes go through sensitivity cycles when you come out of practice where the mind will be steady and stable and then there could be an uprising of, whoa, it's a lot going on here. Then it'll settle back down. 
I'm not saying this because this is everybody's experience or that it's a problematic experience necessarily or that you should be having this experience, but I'm just saying this just in case you do have something like this. You don't need to worry about it. It's normal. Normal. You might notice some differences in the way that you see the world or understand the world. A new view, so to speak. One question that comes up is, to habit or not to habit? So if you look at all the habits that you had before you came here, that you haven't been doing while you're here, then you're going to go back out where you can choose to pick those habits up again. You're in a rather unique position to be able to perhaps selectively choose which ones of those you really want to do again. And sometimes you might notice that there's a compulsivity to pick up certain of them, that they're strong habits and when you're in an environment where you can't do them, you don't, but if you are in an environment where you can do them, you really, really want to. So that sometimes can be valuable information too. When you come out of retreat, the mind's been kind of collected and very often there's a certain amount of concentration. So part of what that means is that concentration can really power whatever habit you pick up. So choose wisely with that. For some of you, you might be going from retreat into a very undefined or uncertain period of prolonged transition. You're not quite sure where you're going to be going or what you're going to be doing or what the next step is, the next move is. So if that's the case for you, consider it bardo practice. You know what bardo is? It's the Tibetan Buddhist teaching on the time, space, experience after the end of one life and before the beginning of of another. This liminal period of time where one thing has ended but then the next major thing hasn't yet started can be a really fruitful place. But it can be a very uncomfortable place, too, because of the uncertainty involved with it. So it would be important in that case to do what you can to stay grounded and to think about what's available to you in terms of support. Or if you don't have support, to think about what you could do in order to get some support and connection. Some special teachings, if you're returning home and or connecting or reconnecting with other specific beings. 
this is advice. So this is my personal view based on my personal experiences. It's very likely, given what you've been doing here, you're going to be on a quite a different wavelength from the people back home. So the question is, can you be with that, with openness and acceptance, that you're just on different channels for a while? Or does the mind have to make that into being a problem? Part of what you may notice, too, is that other people who have been living a very different life than the one you've been living here for the last three months or six weeks aren't necessarily going to be present for you in the way that you are able to be present for them at least initially. So in other words, you're going to be part of what you're going to be seeing or noticing is the way that we human beings usually walk around in a semi-trance state. Very lost in a lot of thinking and in a lot of distraction. You're going to see that in the people around you. Which of course is all of our habitual state except when we've been doing this kind of thing intensively or for a long time. So the question is, can there be some compassion there in that seeing? As far as loved ones and reconnecting with loved ones, whether that's close members of your family or intimate partners, My experience of this is they want to know two things. They want to know, do you still love them? And are you okay? I can remember when I came off my first three-month retreat here, I had told my parents I was going to be coming to the East Coast and doing this silent retreat where I wouldn't be writing or calling and they couldn't write or call me for three months and that seemed odd. And it is, I mean it's kind of odd compared to most people's familiar ways of being. And when I, they they used to have these retreats so that they ended closer to Christmas. So I decided when the retreat ended, instead of going right back to the West Coast, I'd go to my folks' house and spend Christmas there. So I took a train from Worcester and got off in Albany. And meeting me at the train station were my mother, my father, my sister, and my brother. So I'm walking down off the... And they're looking at me like... (laughs) and I could tell they'd been talking (laughs) and they said 
We were thinking we'd go out for pizza and beer. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) And I knew it was a test. (laughs) And so even though I didn't necessarily want pizza and beer right then, because I was, you know, relatively cleaned out at that point, I said, I I knew it was a yes. Yeah, let's go get pizza and beer. Okay. So they want to know, do you, do you love them and are you okay? So if, if you're going home to somebody in particular, some set of somebodies in, in particular, gratitude is very appropriate for those who have held that space for you. Whether or not they've handled everything the way you would have. You know, it's a lot for someone to handle the home stuff when you disappear for a length of time and aren't available. So, along with that, I would also give the advice of, if you can, don't be too precious. You know what I mean? (laughs) Don't be too... Take the space that you need, I'm not saying that. Find a way to balance your energy and things, but yeah. Practice equanimity. Try to try to be somewhat normal. <laughs> it, it'll be appreciated. It really will, because it because if you're not relatively normal, then it stirs up all the questions about, are you okay? Right. So, so the last thing is talking about the retreat. Oh, this is a very interesting one. What to say about the retreat. For, the first point is, there's a certain ineffability about this kind of experience. It can't really be put into words, can it? You can talk about parts of it. You can talk about specific sittings or insights that arose or what you saw this one guy do and you know what the teacher said and you know what the lunch was but the heart of it the essence of it the core of it is really hard to put into words especially since it's still working in you if somebody asks you how was it they are probably asking you a social question. And you should just say, good. <laughs> and they'll say, oh. And then you'll talk about what they want to talk about. It's usually a social question. They usually don't want to hear yeah, too much more than that. Now there are exceptions to this, which are And they will make themselves known. And these are the people who really want to know. There was something about how they ask you or they'll ask you more than once. And those are the kind of people, if you feel comfortable, where it would be appropriate to go have a cup of coffee or tea with in some quiet place. And because they really do want to know. There's something that they find very interesting about what what you did what you've experienced. 
Because there's two kinds of people in relationship to this kind of thing, it seems to me. They're the, the ones that think it's really kind of nuts. And they're the ones that think it's really interesting. And there are more of the first than there are of the second. Okay. Okay. There, there's another danger about saying too much about the retreat out of enthusiasm and desire to share, which is, at least in our culture, culture here in the States, people will be very likely to think that you're proselytizing. Do you know what I mean? That you're trying to, you're telling them this in order to cause them to change their views or be converted to this particular religious or worldview. They just will think that. And you'll be able to tell by the look on their face. And they say, oh yeah, we all have our own path. (laughs) Then you'll know (laughs) you've gone too far. There's the, the other possibility, too, which is may arise at future family holiday occasions, which is someone who wishes to hear about your experience in order to deconstruct it for you or to debate you. Most families have at least one of these types. <laughs> So with that one, I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't bite. Because what would the point be? To defend or attempt to defend this ineffable experience that you've had that you can't even put into words? So I would just let that that one go by. Maybe that that would be a, a case where you could use the phrase, everyone has their own path. It's also wise to avoid uh, dharma talks to your partners. (laughs) Even if you've got a really good one and, yeah, well, So one other little piece about the, the family. I'm just having a memory. <laughs> uh, no, I won't tell that one. Um, but there's a, one other thing in relationship to family groupings, which is often if you've, you've done something that's outside of the boundaries of your individual family experience or their faith tradition, it brings up fear for them. It brings up fear about who are you turning, who are you turning into? You used to be one of us. You're in the lineage of... I'll take an example. My, my mother's family, Irish Catholics. Now, they've been Catholics since St. Patrick told a convincing story about a shamrock. I mean, it goes way back. When you, when you change the, or move outside the family tradition, 
it causes people to be afraid that you're rejecting them, you're rejecting connection with them, you're becoming a kind of mystery. And I've found it to be very useful to try to signal, if this is the case for you, that I still love them, I'm still the same person, I'm not any weirder than I used to be, and reassure them in that kind of way, in in being the same familiar member of the family that remembers birthdays and isn't trying to convert them or push anything on them or make them be different than they are. It goes a long way. I had a very interesting experience a couple years ago where I took my mother uh, on a trip a weekend trip, and we went up to to Burlington, Vermont, and we stayed in a very... My mother was, I think, 87 at the time. Stayed in this hotel on the shores of uh, Lake Champlain there that had a very panoramic view out across the lake and the water. So we were sharing a bedroom, and I got up in the morning and I did my sitting, did my sitting, and my mother went over to a chair, and she got out her novena book, and she read her novena, and I did my sitting, and we did parallel play, or pray, as the case may be. So it was really a beautiful thing. So it can be very useful to take the long view over time with these things. And if people are important to you and worth having a relationship with to put the practice into effect by being open and caring and non-judgmental in your relationship with them so that there's actually modeling of wise intention in relationship to the people who are closest to us and accepting of them for who they are. So those are my words of wisdom for you on your way out into the marketplace. The return So may you all go wisely and safely, going back to the lives that you left or onward to your new life yet to be opened. And may you bring with you the fruits of the practice and live to see the ripening of the work that you've done here. May all your deepest aspirations be fulfilled in this very life.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.